The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Now, junior high was a large junior high. There were about 400 kids in my class, and I was just an average student. I blended into the masses. Not many people noticed me. The cool kids certainly didn't know who I was. But that all changed one winter when my parents took me to Hawaii. We went to Hawaii, and we went and played on the beach, and we played in the sand, and we went body surfing, and I came back golden tan. And I came back golden tan to a bunch of pale white junior high kids. And finally, I stood out. And people started to get to know my name. The popular kids started to find out who I was. And the cutest girl in the school actually talked to me. We even talked on the phone. It's huge. I know. But the tan started to fade. You already see where this is going. The teenage complexion started to come back. The friends started to fade. The girls started to fade. Everything started to fade. And I remember even on one occasion, and this does not leave the room. It will be online, but it does not leave the room. On one occasion, as my tan started to slip away, I remember going into my parents' bathroom, locking the door, turning on the heat light outside their shower, standing up on the toilet, sitting there, looking into it, hoping to extend my tan. Let's close in prayer. Anyways. Now, I know you probably look at that and think, how pathetic, right? And you are absolutely right. But I'm guessing if you thought long enough and hard enough, you too could think of something very silly, very pathetic you did to gain the attention of others. You see, the reality is all of us long to be longed for. All of us long to be wanted. All of us long to be enjoyed and to be delighted in. All of us, without exception, in our deepest heart, want to be cherished by someone greater than ourselves. And when that need is not met, we do one of two things. Either we get very cynical and we stop looking and we become very bitter and very angry. Or we go looking in all the wrong places. Or we oscillate between the two. Today we're going to see that this longing of our heart, this longing to be longed for, this wanting to be wanted, it's put in our heart by God himself. It's a longing given to us by God because it is a longing that is only satisfied by God. If you would please open up to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 31 today. It's page 46 in the Red Bible, page 88 in the Children's Bible. We left off last week with the Israelites in Egypt under slavery and oppression. 
And Moses, in his own exodus, out in the middle of Midian. Moses left Egypt when he was about 40 years old. It has been about 40 years that he's been there. And after 40 years of being in Midian, he is shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And he comes upon this burning bush. And the Lord speaks to him from it and commissions him to go and to deliver the people out of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land of Canaan. Moses, of course, comes with several objections. He says, who am I that I should go and deliver these people? And God said, you're nobody, but I'm going to go with you. Then Moses asks, what if the people, the Israelites, don't believe that you sent me? And God said, I'm going to give you three miracles to prove that you were commissioned by me. And then Moses says, well, Lord, I'm not a good speaker. And he says, I will send your brother Aaron with you to be your mouthpiece. And so all of Moses' objections have been undermined by God. And it is finally time to go. And that's where we pick up today's story. So let's start in verse 18 and we will read through verse 30. Excuse me, verse 31. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were speaking, your, seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his son and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning confessing that this need that you have put into us to be wanted this need you have put in us to be longed for, to be cared for, 
to be cherished. We have sought to satisfy in so many other places, God. And so, Lord, this morning, may we find our joy in your jealousy for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, God says, For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24, God says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, for many of us, we might think jealous and God are two words that should go together. Jealousy is a negative attribute. It's that green-eyed monster that makes us discontent with everything that we have. Jealousy is something that weak people struggle with, not strong people. So how could God be jealous? Well, what we see is even though jealousy is a vice for humans most of the time, it is always a virtue for God. J.I. Packer puts it very well and very succinctly. He says this, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. J.I. Packer goes on to to kind of digest these two ideas of two different types of jealousy. There's the sinful jealousy in which we say, we want that even though we have no ownership of it. We want that. You have it. I hate you for having it. I want it for me. That is a sinful jealousy. But then there is a righteous jealousy zealousy, a zeal, sorry, righteous jealousy, a zeal to protect a loving relationship or to avenge something that is broken. Or as Packer says, a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. For example, it is right for a husband to be jealous for the romantic affections of his wife. It is right for a wife to be jealous of the romantic affections of her husband because those belong to nobody else. And when they give them to somebody else, it is right for us to be jealous for that romantic affection. So we see God is jealous for his people. Now, you'll see in this that the word jealousy actually never comes up in this passage in Exodus chapter 4. But what we read later that the Lord is a jealous God is played out throughout the story of Exodus and throughout the story of Moses going to deliver his people from Egypt. And so what we are going to look at today is the object of God's jealousy, the reason for God's jealousy, the sign of God's jealousy, and the pleasure of God's jealousy. In other words, who is God jealous for? Why is God jealous for them? What sign has God given of his jealousy? And how should we respond to a jealous God? So let's start by looking at the object of, of God's jealousy. Verse 18, Moses, in responding to the Lord's calling, went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now Moses refers to the Israelites as the brothers in Egypt. Later in the passage, he talks about them as Israel or the people of Israel. 
But from what we've seen from the beginning of the book of Exodus is that God has a special attention upon the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 1, the Lord multiplied Israel into a great nation. In Exodus chapter 2, we see the Lord sees and hears and knows the cries of Israel, and he remembers his covenant to save them. In Exodus 3, the Lord calls Moses to go and deliver Israel from bondage. And then in Exodus 4, we see the Lord bringing Moses to Israel to fulfill that deliverance. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Moses kind of soft sells the return to Egypt. He just says, hey, I just want to go back, check on them, make sure that they're alive, make sure everything is okay. But that's not what God had said to him. God in Exodus 3.10 said, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, not to see if the Israelites are alive, but that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The Lord God is not indifferent towards his people. The Lord God delivers his people, protects his people, loves his people. And that's why they are called the people of God. In Exodus chapter 6, you can turn there if you want. It's just two chapters later. In verse 6 through 7, God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you, talking to Israel, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then he gives this amazing promise to slaves. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. God is a territorial God. He is a possessive God. He is jealous for his people. Now, how does this apply today? Who is God jealous for today? We had a great discussion about this the other week at community group and drove me deeper into looking And to the answer of this. But what we see is the people of God in the Old Testament is Israel. And the people of God today are the church. In Exodus 19, verse 3 through 6, we read this. God tells Moses to go. And he says, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, now listen closely to the description of them, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. And then we fast forward several hundred years to the church, to the New Testament. And we read this of the church, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, talking about the church, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is talking about us. God is talking about you. You are his cherished possession. 
It goes in Romans, in Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He says, the true children of Abraham are the Jews that believe in Jesus Christ and the Gentiles that believe in Jesus Christ. All who believe in Jesus Christ are the children of Abraham. They are the people of God. It is the church. The church is who God is jealous for. The church is who he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to lay down his life for as his bride. God is jealous for us. So we are the object of God's jealousy. Now, why? What is the reason that God would be jealous for me and for you? Is it because we are such an attractive people with great tans and great complexion? Is it because we are such a moral people or such a wonderful people or such a delightful people? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked into Ezekiel and it told us who Israel was. Not only were they slaves, not only were they treated as scum, but they were also a very rebellious and idolatrous people. God comes to them and he tells them to cast aside their idols, to repent and turn away from the idols of Egypt and come back and worship him. And then it says, none of them, not one, cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And so God was not jealous for them because they were faithful. And so why was God jealous for Israel? Well, we see the answer in today's passage. Look at verse 22 with me. God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The firstborn son in the culture would have been a place of prominence, someone that would carry on the family name and the family business, someone that would receive a double inheritance over all the other children. The firstborn son, like any other son or daughter, would have been a beloved child of a father. But now Israel is being called a firstborn son. What a drastic paradigm shift. What are they hearing from the Egyptians? They're hearing, you are slaves, you are worthless, you are dirt, you are meaningless. If you can't work, you mean nothing to me. But then the God of the entire universe comes into their slavery and says, you are my son. You are my firstborn son. I am jealous for you and I delight in you and I cherish you. The book of Exodus is about a father that will do anything to bring his child back to himself. Trish and I recently went and saw a movie, and as we were looking, I I noticed there is now Taken 3, the movie, out. And I haven't seen it, but I saw Taken 1. And in the first movie, Taken, there is this man's daughter who goes over to Europe, and she does some really rebellious things, and she's really careless And as a result, she's kidnapped and she's brought into the human trafficking industry. And the movie is the story of a father that will stop at nothing to get her back. At one point, he says, I'll tear down the Eiffel Tower if I have to. Somehow, the father gets on the phone with the kidnapper and he says those famous lines. Maybe you remember it in that really gravelly voice. He says, I don't know who you are, 
I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I do not have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. And then you see the jealousy of a father. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. The father was willing to risk everything because he was jealous for his child. Because he wanted her back. Hosea 1.1. Hosea 1 starts with this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The Exodus is primarily a story of a loving heavenly father who is jealous for his children and wants them to come out and be with him and worship him and enjoy him for all eternity. It's a story of a father who will stop at nothing to deliver his firstborn son out of Egypt, even if it comes at the cost of killing all the firstborn sons of Egypt. And so what about you? Are you a child of God? You know, some will say, we're all God's children, right? Have you ever heard? We're all God's children. The Egyptians weren't God's children. Are you a child of God? It's a glorious thing to be a child of God. But we don't become children of God because our parents went to church. And we don't become children of God because we go to church. We become children of God by looking to the child of God, Jesus Christ. In John 1 verse 11, we read Jesus came to his own. That means to the Jews. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, we too are a people of Egypt, an Exodus people. We too are in bondage to sin, to its power, to its penalty. We too have been taken away by our captor, by our enemy, brought under his dominion. And yet our jealous heavenly father would stop at absolutely nothing to regain you to himself. And so in order to make you daughters and sons of the living God, he was willing to do anything, even if it meant to set his only son, his only begotten son, his beloved son, to come and die for your sin, die for your rebellion, die for your wandering, to make you his son, to make you his daughter. He would give anything because he is jealous for you. Romans 8.29 tells us that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, is the firstborn among many brothers. All who believe, all who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are called children of God. Are you a children of God? Look to the child of God, Jesus Christ. Now, what are the sign of the Lord's jealousy? Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, we're not sure who the him is in this passage. 
Um, it will fill in later Moses, but that's something the translators put in. We don't know who the Lord was seeking to put to death. Maybe it was Moses. Maybe it his, was his eldest son. We're not sure. And honestly, it doesn't matter a whole lot. But what we see is that Moses in some way has offended a holy God. Verse 25, then Zipporah, Moses's wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it at Moses's feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verse 24 through 26 is the most bizarre thing I've ever read in the Bible. It's probably the most bizarre thing I've read anywhere. I didn't even know it was in the Bible. If I knew it was in the Bible, I would have had Stephen preach on this passage last week. I mean, could you imagine Zipporah's conversation with her boys? Hey, kids, your dad's sick. I know this seems strange, but I think I know how we can heal him. I'd be like, Mom, get away from me, right? But you know what's so fascinating? God thought this passage was important to put in the Bible. And Moses did too. He's the one who wrote it. And so that means it's profitable for us because all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting in righteousness. And so we don't know all the details of the passage. We're not sure who got sick and, and whose feet were touched with the foreskins. And we don't know why Zipporah calls herself a bridegroom of blood. But we do know some things. We do know why God was so angry. We do know why Zipporah cut off the foreskins of her sons. And we do know why God turned aside his wrath. And so let's look into those and to get those answers and to understand that we actually have to go back to Genesis 17 and do a little bit of work. It will be on the screen behind me. But Genesis 17, verse 7, God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you. He's talking to Abraham. And your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And then here is God's covenant promise. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, excuse me, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Evidently, Moses's boys weren't. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign, remember that word, a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And then we see how serious God is about the sign of the covenant being applied to Abraham's children and his children's children. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
Exodus 4, 24 through 26 reminds us that God is serious about his covenant. And he's serious about the sign of the covenant being applied to his children. Let me give you an illustration just in today's terms. Traditionally, when people get married, they exchange rings, right? And these rings are signs of the covenant. They're signs that say to one another, Trish, I belong to you. And for Trish, Dan, I belong to you. But it also says to the world, it's a sign to the world, hey, hands off, I belong to another, right? Now, if my wife was going on a weekend with the girls and she said, I'm going to leave my covenant sign behind, I'm going to leave my ring behind, there would be a righteous jealousy that would stir in my heart. I would say, why are you leaving this behind? Are you forgetting the covenant? Are you disclaiming me as your covenant obligation? Circumcision was a sign of God's commitment to Israel, but it was also a sign of Israel's commitment to God. Moses was going to fulfill the covenant to bring the people up out of Egypt, to bring them into the promised land. And yet he was going without applying the sign of the covenant to his own children. And so the Lord stops him in the tracks and says, no, I am a jealous God. Put the sign on your kids right now. God was about to fulfill his covenant. He had, he was going to fulfill his covenant and he wanted the covenant sign to be upon Abraham's children. The sign of circumcision, which would say to the world, I belong to another, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, we first have to understand that circumcision meant something to the Israelites. It meant that they were dedicated to God, certainly, but it also looked forward to Christ and to his sacrifice and that he would be cut that he would spill blood for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2.11 talks about this. It says, In Christ also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here Paul is linking circumcision and baptism. And what we see is circumcision is the Old Testament sign of grace that looks forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And baptism is a New Testament sign of God's covenant of grace that looks backwards to the cross of Jesus Christ. The covenant is the same. It is a covenant of grace. God saved people in the Old Testament the same way he saves people in the New Testament. And it's by grace through faith and looking to the Savior. And so what we see is that the covenant of grace has entered a new era. And with Christ coming, it's entered a new era. But it is the same covenant of grace. But it being brought into a new era, it is given a new sign. Let me give this illustration I remember the Houston Oilers. Does anyone remember the Houston Oilers? They were a football team that were in Houston. That's the name, I guess. <laughs> and then they were bought out and they were moved to Tennessee. And for two years, they were the Tennessee Oilers. I didn't remember that part. They were the Tennessee Oilers for two years. But then they changed their name to the Tennessee Titans. It was the same team, the same era, but it was 
It was a new, I'm sorry, it's the same team and the same owner, but it was a new era and they needed a new sign. And so no longer do they have the oil thing on their helmets, but now they have this great big T with a circle and flames coming out of it. And when they changed their sign from this oil rig to this T, people started buying signs of the of the team. They bought these shirts with these T's and they would, they would apply to themselves and to their children in order to say, this is who we are rooting for. This is who we are committed to. This is who we are dedicated to. And they would tell it to the entire world. The covenant of the Old Testament and the New Testament is a covenant of grace. It is the same. It all points to Jesus. Baptism today, just as circumcision back then, is the sign of God's jealous love for his covenant people and his covenant of grace. And just again, as the Old Testament believers look for, look backwards, excuse me, look forward to Christ. New Testament believers look backwards to Christ and apply the sign of covenant to their family and to their household. Now I know we don't all agree that the sign should be applied to our whole household, but one thing we can all agree on from this passage is that our baptism is not to be taken lightly. If you have been baptized, you have had your life dedicated to God. You do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to others. You belong to God. It is a serious thing we do when we perform a baptism. We are committing ourselves to a jealous God who wants the sign of the covenant upon us. And so that is the sign of God's jealousy. Next, there is the pleasure of God's jealousy. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Now catch this. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worship. What happened? They found out that God knew about them. They found out that God cared about them. They found out that God was jealous for them. And it turned to praise. Oprah Winfrey tells a story of when she was in her late 20s, she would go to a very charismatic Baptist church and this great minister would get up and he preach and he preach all these great things about how God is omniscient. He knows all things and he's omnipotent. He is, he's all powerful. And he's all these omnis, omnis, omnis. God is this great God. He doesn't need anybody. And then the preacher said, our God is a jealous God. And Oprah responds to that in telling the story. And she said, I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said, jealous. And something struck me, and I was thinking, God is all, and God is jealous? God is jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. That's when the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. You know, so many people want to bash Oprah. You can just YouTube it. It's out there. Oprah's right. If the Lord God is a God who is jealous of me, he's not a God to be worshipped. But that's not what the Bible says. 
The Bible does not say God is jealous of me. The Bible says God is jealous for me. God is jealous for my worship. He is jealous for my heart. He is jealous for my life because I am his prize. You are his prize. The church is his treasure. He is not jealous of us. There's nothing to be jealous of, but he is jealous for us. And that should turn our hearts to worship and to praise. You know, it's amazing as you go on in the story after the exodus, when the people are out wandering in the wilderness, the people return to idolatry again. They start worshiping other gods. But then there is this one guy named Phineas. And God commends him. Numbers 25, verse 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. How? And that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God, and made atonement for the people of Israel. Because God is jealous for you, you cannot be jealous for God. Are you jealous for God? Do you want more of God? Do you want to enjoy more of God? Do you want to cast aside the idols in your life, lay down your agenda, and turn to the Lord and grow in intimacy with him? Are you jealous for him? Are you jealous that you come and you worship him? This is what worship is. Worship is saying we are jealous for the Lord. We want to worship him and praise him because we love him and we love to enjoy him. And so because God is jealous for us, we should be jealous for him. And we should worship and praise him, not just on Sundays, but every hour of the week. Let me end with this. There's a Spanish story of a father and a son who had become estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to find him. And he searched for months for his son to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. The ad read this. Dear Paco, Meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Sunday noon comes, excuse me, Saturday noon comes around. 800 Pacos show up. Looking for the forgiveness and love and jealousy of a father. You know, I started out by saying that all of us long to be longed for. All of us want to be wanted. We are created to be cherished. And your, your, your earthly father may not do that. But you have a heavenly father that is jealous for you. That cherishes you. That delights in you. <laughs> And this leads us to worship. Who is God jealous for? His children. 
his church. Why is God jealous for us? Not because of what we have done, but because we've made us, he's made us his kids through Jesus. What sign has he given to us of his jealousy? Circumcision and now baptism. And how do we respond to a jealous God? By jealously worshiping him as our heavenly father. Let's pray. Lord, this this thought is too amazing to conceive. So few people in this world are jealous for us, and yet the perfect holy God of the universe is so jealous that he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Lord, help us to meditate on this glorious news. All this week, as Satan throws our sin in front of our face and tells us that's who you are, let us cast it aside and say, no, my God is jealous of me. He's jealous for me. And I am his child. And he delights in me and rejoices in me. Let us remember the truths of the gospel and in jealousy worship you every second of every day for your glory and for our enjoyment of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.